0: 2 Kings 25, we've worked through 1 Kings and 2 Kings, and this is tonight literally the end. Um, My dad, for many years, used to work in industrial safety for an oil company. Now, what could go wrong in an oil company with petroleum? The answer, just about everything. And uh, I can remember some very strange conversations uh, of an evening or a weekend where we saw him Stories of terrible disasters and tragedies. Of overtired lorry drivers that crashed into people's houses. Of people that weren't paying attention as they were filling uh, those great big reservoirs under fuel petrol stations and things going wrong and spills and floods. Because it was the 80s, somebody was always smoking nearby. So evening meals were a strange time. And I can remember nothing else of his workplace except those strange stories and their, their, their little tagline, the tagline that he worked with and was paid to enforce. Safety is no accident. Safety is no accident. And of course, conversely, foolishness, and as we come to two kings, neglect of God brings many accidents And tragedies, tragedies which could and should have been avoided. The end of two kings is terrible. We are spared the actual details of the bloodshed as the city was destroyed. I mean, if its inhabitants slaughtered and the others taken away. Not because we're spared, not because the the historian is squeamish but because he doesn't want us to get lost in that horrific detail. And because he wants us to track with him that even in this terrible tragedy, God is at work. But he's at work through the most severest of discipline and judgment upon the city. We're going to look at most of this chapter through the title uh, of the end as we look at up to verse 26 but I want to leave us a few minutes to wonder together the way that the historians crafted this is he signaling at the end of his history that there is grace in the end that's a question we're going to look at so judgment in the end Zedekiah was king of Judah. You can read his story from verse 18, just before where Kelechi began. Um, He got to 30. 30 is the age in the Bible when the Levites began their priestly ministry at the temple. It was an age where proper manhood was seen to have been arrived at. And I don't know, something clicked in Zedekiah's head, perhaps his advisor's had a rush of blood to their heads, but he rebelled against the king of Babylon, which is something you really don't want to do. An unwise act indeed. And it brought the Babylonian army. They were, well, three things. They were besieged. Then they were destroyed. And the majority who weren't destroyed were deported. Let's look quickly at some of those details. Verse Three, when the city is besieged, it's besieged for 18 months. Siege works were all around it. And the famine was so severe, we read in verse 3. There was no food for the people to eat. Except there probably was food. It was other people's children. It was a desperate, desperate time of terror and starvation and murder. The city was besieged. But then when the city wall was broken, verse 4, notice, it's not the Babylonian army flooding in, it's a Judean army sneaking out, breaking through their own city wall, fleeing at night, and taking with them their king, Zedekiah. So there's a breakthrough, a breakout, but of course it doesn't work. He is captured, verse 6. Sentences passed on him when he's carted off to Ribbler. His son's killed before his eyes and he is blinded and bound and taken to Babylon. This broken, bereaved, blinded king is in a sense uh, an image of the city which was destroyed. Look at the three details which the historian picks out for us. Firstly, verses 8 to 10. There's no more temple. There's no more civic order because, verse 9, every important building he burnt down. And when he destroys the walls, there's no future. So the temple is destroyed. There's no more worship of God. The key buildings are destroyed. So those would be housing important documents and archives and the law system, etc. So society will inevitably collapse, what was left of it. But there couldn't be any society because so that the society, the city could not be built up again, the Babylonians smashed down the walls. And turned it into a heap of rubble. Just come forward with me please to verses 13 to 17. Because of all the things that the historian can focus on. He focuses upon the temple. And Avalian's destruction of it and theft. Of all the bronze pillars and everything of any religious significance. And financial significance value It's all carted off. They're removing it piece by piece. And I think that hints at, and we're supposed to understand, a deeper truth. That God has already dismantled true worship from his temple. And he's already removed his presence from amongst his people. This is a great reversal, of course, of all that Kings has been about. Kings begins with the very elderly David passing on the the kingship rather with its responsibilities to Solomon. Solomon prays for wisdom. He grows in wisdom and wealth and power and great prosperity. So what do we read here? from that nation established with God's blessing, favor, presence and security and wealth and the, 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 the building of the temple, the temple has gone. Security has gone. Prestige has gone. Everything is being taken away. Each of those promises, domino-like, are falling over. As Kalechi was reading to us, and I heard again verse 16. The bronze was more than could be weighed. And I thought, where, where do we hear a phrase like that? And I didn't have time to check it during the reading, but early in Solomon's reign, that vast income, more than could be counted, is it? Or weighed in the royal and the temple coffers? Well, it's all being taken off to Babylon. God is dismantling the city, society, temple. He's bringing his judgment. This is the end. And as all that was valuable and important and and wealthy in Jerusalem and Judah go, so some people go with it. They are deported. So besieged, destroyed, and deported. Zedekiah, verse 7, as we've heard, is already taken off. Verses 11 and 12, the poor are left, they're no use to anybody, least of all the Babylonians. So, some of them can stay, verse 12, to work the vineyards and the fields. Jump down to verses 18 and 21. Some of the very important are taken, those with high religious office and military significance. But I guess that Nebuchadnezzar, verse 20, the commander, thinks that they are too important. That, and maybe there they might be those deported Jejins who, who rally around them, perhaps to rise up or gain hope from their existence. So they are not spared. Verse 21, the king had them executed. And listen to this heavy sentence in the same verse. So Judah went into captivity away from her land. This is the end. This is exile. And exile is judgment. God always told his people that if they were disobedient, they would be exiled and destroyed. Two verses to give you a flavor of these constant warnings through the book of Moses. Deuteronomy 8, 19 and 20. Deuteronomy 8, 19 and 20. If you ever forget the Lord your God and follow other gods and worship and bow down to them, I testify against you today that you will surely be destroyed. Like the nations the Lord destroyed before you, so you will be destroyed for not obeying the Lord your God. Leviticus 18 verse 28, Moses again, if you defile the land, it will vomit you out as it vomited out the nations that were before you. And the land has vomited them out and they have been destroyed and this is God's judgment. And it is their story and it is a national tragedy, but it's a tragedy which is actually echoed in every Every nation, and every home, and every heart. What does that mean? The Bible tells a whole story which it insists can alone make sense of our lives. That we find ourselves in exile. Humanity is in exile from God. That began with our first parents. Shut out from the garden. Sentenced to a life of pain and tears and sweat and toil. Life away from the presence and the blessing of God. Thistles and thorns. Conflict between people. And there are so many stories in Western and increasingly global societies which try to give account for this sense of exile we all feel. Something being wrong, that we're struggling under some injustice and we need to rise up and do something to make life right and fair and return from this sense of alienation and loneliness. Some of these explanations lead with uh, the problem of racism. Others with economic injustice. That's the big story. We're, we're, We're economically oppressed. Others would say it's the oppression of sexual minorities that brings so much misery and exile in the world. Now those, those theories, it's racism, it's economic oppression, it's, it's oppression of sexual minorities, they, they echo the Christian story because they get that the world is not right. Our lives are not right. We, we want and we need a way out. And they hope that as we find that way and follow it, we can experience restoration, a return from exile, a belonging, a future. If the leading narrative is it's racism which is the cause of all our problems, then redemption comes through protest, through righting wrongs and agitating for justice. If we think that the greatest evil which prevents people from flourishing is economic injustice, or what's the remedy? Let's rise up. Let's smash and dismantle current economic systems and replace them with something else. Or for those who believe that the greatest cause of misery in the world is heteronormativity, the positing that heterosexual relationships are ideal for human flourishing, then we will clamor for inclusivity and the honoring of other Sexualities, And we'll insist on diversity and we'll celebrate diversity. You see, every heart longs for a return from exile. It's just we see those exiles differently and we therefore try to bring different solutions. Well, the Bible is, is clear. The Bible almost would agree that the world is not what it should be. We are not where we should be. Cultures and societies and races find themselves exploited And oppressed. And individuals do. The world is full of darkness. The Bible is the great good news. Of the revelation of God. Who cares deeply. About oppression. And exploitation. And greed. And injustice. Infinitely more than we do. And the Bible consistently identifies. The deepest wickedness of the world. Not as the structures and the opinions. Which crush people but it's a deep enmity which every human heart finds itself to be in, locked into against its creator, and that is sin. Sin makes us push God away and mistreat and oppress others. The cruelty of our hearts towards God is expressed in in countless ways in cruelty towards other people, maybe individuals, races, communities. And the way back from exile as the Bible gives us the facts as they are, it's not ultimately that we have to fight more fiercely against what's wrong in our hearts or the world, though there is a place to fight. But the Bible's ultimate story is that the fight is elsewhere. And the fight has been fought already by another So what have we seen through one kings? And it's only sped up through two kings. Leader after leader. Charged by God to fight for his people. To fight for justice and to fight against injustice. To serve and rule with integrity and purity of heart and courage. And we see some good kings and we see many more bad kings. And most, like us, are mixes Of those two things. But we see consistent inability. Even of the best kings. To be that leader of integrity. Who will lead a people. Into the full blessing of God. Two kings prepares us like all of the Old Testament. For the great fighter, the great king in David's line, the great one who would come to lead a people from exile. Cardinal John Henry Newman, a very, very controversial and divisive Victorian figure, a leader of the so-called Tractarian movement in the middle of the 1800s, who then became a, a Roman Catholic. I don't agree with everything he said. I don't agree with a great deal of what he said. But I sing this hymn with wild abandon. And we've sung it a few times at Hope Church. Praise to the holiest in the height. And in the depths be praised. Verse 2 and verse 3. O oh, loving wisdom of our God. When all was sin and shame, a second Adam to the fight and to the rescue came. O wisest love, that flesh and blood which did in Adam fail should strive afresh against the foe, should strive and should prevail. And it seems like all the purposes and promises of God are ending in this history book, not on some great climax, but in a pit of judgment and exile and failure. The end has come. The people have met their God. And in a sense, they have. And we hate looking at failure, don't we? Most of all our failures. But we learn a lot about ourselves and we have the courage and integrity to look at how wretched and weak and inconsistent and fearful and hypocritical we are. And we see the struggling, sinning men and women of the Bible not as people to be despised and despaired of, but people just like us. Frightened and foolish, in need of grace. So as we do see in every real sense the end in these verses I think that our historian has crafted this last paragraph with such brilliance that we might hurry to an end and think I never think I really liked history I feel even more confirmed in that view now good, what's over the page? Actually, we get 1 Chronicles that's not an easy read either but I think he's constructed this with such brilliance that he wants to get us wondering about God's purposes. And I think he wants to see that in the greatest darkness, where we zero in on one man, a prisoner in Babylon, even there we are seeing the glimmers of God's grace. The purposes of God have not been totally crushed. But God is there with this broken king. And God has plans of grace for a new day and a new people. So we catch up with the drama here. King Jehoiakim, who actually we met in chapter 24. He's there. And he is at the table of the fabulously named evil meredach Evil Merodach, the king of Babylon, who has a change of heart seemingly. Verse 28. And he spoke kindly to Jehoiakim. And he gave him a seat of honor higher than... Now, who are these people? Who are the other kings who are with him in Babylon? Presumably, lots of other captured heads of vassal states. It's as if Evil Merodach has got the ugliest beauty parade, tramping in for for breakfast, dinner, and tea. Of all these captured people, that make even Madak feel very important and very powerful. And he singles out one of them. And he gives him an honour higher than those of the other kings who are in Babylon. I mean, Judah was nowhere special. Tiny little landlocked state. Of no, no... Local, regional significance. But it, as it were, God placed compassion and respect in this Babylonian king's heart. So he put aside his prison clothes and for the rest of his days he ate regularly at the king's table. And day by day the king gave Jehoiakim pocket money, quite a lot of it, a regular allowance. As long as he lived, that's strange, isn't it? That's a bit of a head scratcher. You might think we were just about to hit a wall at hundred miles an hour, but the historian has just braked slowly. But now I think there's more there. Remember what what is the historian doing with us as he leads us through these? This book of kings, which has been chopped conveniently into two for our, our ease of reading one and two kings. What's he doing? He's showing us the promise of God through the line of the kings who are the descendants of David. Even in a broken nation, divided into Israel in the north and Judah in the south. And he's showing us here that as one broken Failure, but still descendant of David, is at the court of Babylon. God is ensuring that he has given some degree of honour, some degree of favour, and certainly God's own protection. So that if you were to turn the page, or a few pages, and come to Matthew chapter 1, actually, let me take you there. Matthew chapter 1, you know the bit you skip over or read dutifully but quickly. is a genealogy. And it's a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And looky me down in verse 11. There's Josiah. We heard about him last week. Oh, but we don't know who this person is. His son was a man called Jeconiah. Huh. Ah, Jeconiah. His other name was Jehoiakim. Ah, this guy, the end of 2 Kings 25 guy, there he is with his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. And he stands in that third unit of three of the genealogies as the father of Arshealtiel oh, and Zerubbabel, and on, and on. And then Jacob, the father of Joseph, Mary's husband, of whom was born Jesus, who was called Christ. Jehoiakim couldn't save anybody. He couldn't deliver his people from exile. His sins were a part reason why they went to exile. But his descendant Jesus is the great rescuer from exile. He comes in Mark's gospel out of the wilderness to declare that the kingdom of God is at hand. To preach the good news and to call people a weary, exhausted Doubting people, wondering if God's plans could ever be on track, calling them back to their God, to believe in his promises, to believe in his son, to receive the free grace which he gives to all who trust in him. Jehoiakim's descendant is the great exile reversal. And Jesus brings restless Lonely hearts back from an exile from God. Because on the cross, he was exiled. My God, my God, why have you exiled me? Abandoned me. Sent me to judgment. Blinded me by your wrath. Cut short my life. That's the king that the books of kings point to. He's the only one who could lead and serve and save. All of their failures point to Jesus and all of our failures drive us to Jesus and find grace in the end in him. So that the Apostle Paul in Ephesians, Ephesians 2 verse 13 says, Now in Christ Jesus, you who are once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. We have brought near, we have been brought home to God. Out of exile, into forgiveness, into the Father's care. And love and favor. So that we could, and we're going to finish with this thought, we could see that last paragraph and say, well, where are we? The king, not just some whim-driven, proud, earthly king. The king of kings has spoken kindly to us through Jesus Verse 28, and as we have trusted in Jesus, He's given us a seat of honor greater than any other promotion, exaltation, attention, favor, gift, success. We've been given a seat of honor at the King's own table. We have put aside, verse 29, our prison clothes. We've walked out of that prison, out of our old life. We're in Christ, we are a new creation. We are clothed with the king's royal robes of righteousness. And for the rest of our earthly lives, as Christians, we are eating and fellowshipping with the king. He spreads before us a table in the presence of our enemies. He anoints our heads with oil. Our cups overflow. And because we are out of exile and we're going home, we will one day dwell in the house of the Lord forever. We can only worship for grace in the end. Let's pray. Loving Father, we ask with the hymn writer, Why, O Lord, such love to me? Hallelujah. Grace. Grace shall reign eternally. And we thank you, Lord, that in the devastation and horror of your right judgment upon your ancient and wayward people, you are still working out grace and mercy through the King who would come. Bless your name for everything that is in ours, brought near in Christ. Receive our worship in him and strengthen us as aliens and strangers in this world to journey with him until we dwell forever in your house. Amen.